You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, guys. If you guys want to take your seats, right on. So I see a few new faces, and I'm glad that you guys are here. This mic may be just a tad bit hot. Yes, it is. I was right. Cool. Uh, yeah, I see a few new faces. I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Revolution Church. Uh, and what we're doing, if you've not been with us for the last three months or so, is we are going through the book of First John. We're going just a few verses at a time, really digging through uh, this letter uh, from the Apostle John. Uh, and if I could call this sermon series something, we say it every week, this is my little shtick, it's uh, simple truths, right? Because most of what John writes in this letters or in this letter are things that we have heard before, especially if you grew up in church. Uh, but it's things that we always need reminded of. So, in light of that constant need to remember and hear and receive the same truths over and over and over again, um, in light of that need that we have, I would ask that you please try as hard as you can to soften your hearts that you can receive these truths, and that you wouldn't let your eyes glaze over and say, yes, I've heard that before, Uh, but to let old truths dwell in you, that you might know Christ deeply. Um, Again, John Calvin has a quote that I love. He says, we do not come to the preaching to learn something new. We come to the preaching to be exhorted to do our duty and to love God, right? So I love that. Uh, So that's what we're going to do this evening. Uh, So tonight, we're going to be finishing off the second chapter of this letter, and it only took us three months or so to do it. Uh, I'm pretty pumped. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Uh, if you're new here and you don't own a Bible, uh, take one of those Bibles home that's in the back of that pew. It's our gift to you. Uh, it's also going to be up here on the projector. Uh, but these two verses, verses 28 and 29, they are the climax of everything that John has been pushing for uh, in these last 12 verses. Right, uh, Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 is like a big subsection of this letter. So this is the climax of that subsection. Uh, And John is repeating a a theme that we looked at last week. Uh, He's going to tell us to abide in him. He's going to tell us to abide in Christ. That's what verse 27 actually ends with. Um, And and abiding in Jesus is a huge deal in John's writing. It's something that he wants us to take seriously. It's something he wants us to contemplate. Uh, Never forget that John's gospel, it's the same gospel or same writer, uh, who wrote the Gospel of John. John chapter 15 has the big section where Jesus talks about abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, so abide in me, abide in my love. You should read it. For, or Gospel of John chapter 15, check that out. Um, but if I could give you a summary, just real quick, of what John is going to teach us this evening, it would be this. So if you're a note writer, good luck. Uh, it's a couple sentences. Take this with you. This is the summary. You're going to hear it again. Uh, at the end of the sermon. If you continue to trust in and submit to who Jesus is and what He has done, then you will have confidence before Him on the day of judgment. And you can know that that confidence is yours if your life reflects who Jesus is. Right? So you can have confidence on the day of judgment If you abide in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus and submit to who he is and what he has done, and you can know that that confidence is yours to have if your life reflects who Jesus is. 
So a little bit of context before we actually read this passage. Again, rehash this. We're finishing a section, 218 through 229. So a summary of what we've seen in this section. Uh, John has warned his readers, right, and in doing so has warned us, uh, of coming and present antichrists. Right, those who would oppose Jesus, those who teach false doctrine, lead people astray and, and end up leading them into hell if they persist in that false doctrine. People who were teaching blasphemies about Jesus, denying that he had come in the flesh, denying that he alone was the way to salvation, denying that faith alone in Christ alone was enough to be saved. Right? These antichrists had come. He said, he's warned them, they're already here among you and more are coming. And he has told them, his readers, that the remedy to heresy is to abide in the truth about Jesus that they received at the beginning of their faith. The truths uh, truths about Christ that the apostles had always preached, that they had first received. And that's what we looked at last week. That the remedy to heresy is to abide in what we know. And now, John is giving us another reason to abide in Christ. And that reason is the second coming of Christ, right? That's why we read that confession. That's why we sang the song, The World Will Know, right? Again, all this, if you never paid attention, everything that we do whenever we meet together is meant to guide us towards one big theme every time that we get together, right? Um, but the, the, the reason that he's telling us to abide in Christ in this passage is the second coming of Christ, right? So look at it this way. John has said, hey, guys, antichrists are coming, so abide in Christ. Also, the regular Christ is coming too, so abide in him because he is on his way as well. Um, so John is going to tell us why to abide in Christ and also how to have assurance that we are abiding in him or that we have been born again of him. All right, so First John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Let's read them and we'll pray. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word given to us faithfully. God, we thank you for the Apostle John and what you inspired him to write to us, to remind us of the coming of Jesus, to remind us to trust in Christ, to abide in him. Holy Spirit, please do a sovereign work of grace this evening. Work through me as I, as I do my best to be faithful to the Word. Um, work alongside the Word, Spirit, and, and, and transform our hearts. If people are here that don't know Jesus, please bring them to faith in Christ. And for those of us who do already know Christ, draw us tighter to Him, that we might abide and have confidence at the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the world. Spirit, if you don't do a work of sovereign grace, this is all for nothing, so please do something. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, verse 28 is the climax of this section, like I said in the introduction. Uh, He's telling us, John is saying, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. Again, considering that he has just said that in verse 27, to end that verse, abide in him, uh, the repetition tells us of the importance of uh, of, of, the, of the command to abide in Christ. Um, but here what's special about verse 28 is that John is stressing that we are to abide in light of Jesus' appearing. Right? So in light of the fact that he's going to return, abide in him. Again, his appearing, uh, parousia, I believe is the Greek word for that, that's always used as a clear-cut reference to the return of Jesus. Now, I'm totally aware that the slides just went out. 
So don't worry about trying to follow me in a Bible because we're about to go through some decently long parts of Scripture. I got three we're going to run through. All right, and don't worry about this stuff. Um, so Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, right? Let's think about the return of Jesus. What is this return going to be like? Verse 9, And when he had said these things, Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand up, or why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right? So whenever John talks about this appearing of Jesus or this coming of Christ that he wrote about in verse 28 that we just read, um, it's a reference to what we're seeing in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. That there is going to be a literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus. This is not a metaphor. Uh, you'll hear some false teachers say uh, something about a spiritual return of Jesus instead of a physical one. That's just bogus because the angel that we read uh, here in, in Acts chapter 1 says he will come back in the same way as you saw him go. They saw him go bodily, physically up into heaven. So he's saying in the same way, he's going to come back. So again, just as he left, he will return literally in body. Christ will return. Now, the Bible is plain to explain that the first coming of Jesus was one of humility. Right? This is what we always, these are the stories that we hear around Christmas, right? Out of the Gospel of Luke. The humble coming of Christ. He's born of the Virgin Mary. He was born poor. That Christ was a... a in his, in his humanity growing up on earth, he, he was a, a man of no great renown, right, from a backwater town called Nazareth. Um, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he gave up all of his divine privileges, not that he ever gave up his deity for a second, but that he gave up his privileges as God and poured himself out and took on flesh and submitted himself in obedience to God even to death on a cross, that Christ comes in humility in his first coming. And that in that first coming, Jesus Christ came to do the work of redemption, right? To live and die in place of God's people, right? Think of Isaiah. He comes as the suffering servant in his first coming to give mercy to sinners, to live and die in place of ruined sinners that they might be reconciled to God. But when he returns, it's a little bit of a different picture. I have a few passages I want to read out of the Gospel of John and Revelation. John chapter 5, verses 27 through 29. Jesus is coming back as the judge. And he has given him authority. The Father has given Christ authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, sometime in the future, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus has been given the authority by the Father to judge all men. So when Christ returns, He will come back just like He came uh, the first time, bodily, physically, but He will not be clothed in humility anymore. He will be clothed like this. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. And in righteousness, He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems or crowns. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His second coming is much, much different than his first one, is it not? Significantly, he comes, he first he came as a suffering servant, and we're told he's going to return as a warrior, as a judge, as the King of all kings that has no rival, that he will strike the nations down with a rod of iron, like we read in Psalm 2 at the beginning of the service. Christ comes back, he's not to be trifled with. Right? And on that day of judgment, all people, please hear me on this, all people will be laid out before him. Everyone will be laid bare, exposed before the judgment of Christ. There will be no hiding from the judgment of Christ. In the Gospels, Jesus says people who are trying to flee from him will beg the mountains to fall on them and cover them, but there will be no escaping from him in the judgment. Every thought you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken, every deed you have ever done, every action you've ever taken, everything will be accounted for on that day. There will be no secrets whatsoever. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the judgment of Christ, as you can see from this, is to me, at least growing up, whenever I'd hear these passages read, this is the most terrifying concept that I had ever heard of. And if you're an unbeliever, this should be the most terrifying thing that you've ever heard because the judgment of Christ is a dreadful thing for sinners who do not personally know the judge. It's a dreadful thing. Author of Hebrews said it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. Terrible thing. But John tells us in this verse, right, bringing it back to the letter that we're in, chapter 2, verse 28, John tells us that there are two groups of people on this coming day of judgment. He says there are those of us who will be confident and there are those who will shrink back in shame. So there are the ashamed. And whenever he says shame, he's not talking about you'll, you'll be embarrassed when Jesus returns. Right? It has something much deeper. If you read Old, Old Testament passages that talk about uh, the nations being shamed before God or individuals having shame uh, before God. Whenever the Bible talks about shame before the judge, it means to be the shame of the world. That nothing in the universe wants to associate with you because you're under the righteous condemnation of God. To be ashamed at the return of Christ is to be rejected by God. And no one wants to associate with those who are rejected by God. To be the scorn of God 
The Bible would tell us, like we read in Psalm 2, to be mocked by God for your rejection of Christ, for your persistence in your sin and your refusal to repent, to be under the condemnation of God, which means to be under the wrath of God and destined for hell. Those are the ashamed. So there'll be those who shrink back in shame when Christ returns, destined for hell because of their persistence and their rebelliousness and sin against God. But then there'll also be those who are confident before him. Right, now, the word confident we get there, it's got some connotations uh, in the original language John used. Uh, that word confident, I love this. It means to be bold. Right? Not arrogant, but to be bold and full of joy. To be joyous when Christ returns. Rejoicing, looking forward to seeing the return of Christ when he cracks the sky and comes down to earth in judgment. That we can actually be people who rejoice to see that. Though it's a dreadful, terrifying thing that we could actually be excited for this. It's an insane thought, isn't it? To know that Christ is going to judge you and you would be stoked for it. as nuts. Right? But whenever he says boldness, I think one of the, one of the best ways that, I, that I've been able to think about it this past week is to go before the judgment of Christ with confidence, knowing that you're going to be accepted by him as a friend. To know that the judge is going to pardon you and accept you as a friend. That, to know that you will be saved from his wrath, to be saved from his judgment. And this bold, joyful confidence is for those who have placed their trust in Christ. Romans ten eleven says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him, Christ, will not be put to shame. Right? So that's the opposite of being ashamed, is being confident, not being put to shame. And John tells us in verse 28 how we can be confident ones, how we can be in that category of people. In a nutshell, he says, abide in him so that when he returns, you will have confidence before him. Right? So abide, what does that mean? I know I'm stepping on toes of what I preached on last week, but bear with me. If you're like me, it didn't probably quite sink in. So let's do it again. To abide in Christ is to continue in a true, right relationship with Jesus. To continue on in intimate knowledge of Christ. To know Him deeply. And I would make this argument. That this relationship to Jesus looks like submission. Submission to who He is and what He has done. To submit to Him by faith. To submit to Him in faith. Trusting in Him. But submission nevertheless. Now this might seem like a strange concept to someone. Like, just be honest, because I'm going to do this whether or not we've got people raise their hands. Does anyone think that submission to someone seems like a strange, like, grounds for relationship? i got a couple of head nods. Thank you. The rest of you are liars, because I was like, I thought that was a weird thought, right? No, I'm kidding. I love you guys. Um, right, but so, some people would think that submission to Jesus does not seem like much of a real relationship with Jesus, right? Seems kind of, like, uh, scary almost, I guess. Um, But I would argue, if you're one of those people, if you're like me and you initially think that submission to Jesus does not sound like a real relationship, let me put this before you. You probably think that because you think that a relationship has to be approached by equals on mutual terms. That's not true. But that's what we tend to think of as a relationship uh, in the West. Two equals approach one another on mutual terms and thereby enter into relationship. Here's a little bit of an analogy uh, about relationship, I suppose. So imagine me and a friend, Jeff, 
right? And I met a dude on campus named Jeff, so I'm probably going to have to change my name to, like, Carl or something. But Jeff is always my go-to in made-up stories, right? But let's say that I got a friend named Jeff, uh, and me and him just met, and Jeff has no authority over me whatsoever, right? He's He's an American just like me. He's not a cop or anything like that. He has no authority over me. I have no authority over him. We're both complete co-equals, co-equal in authority, co-equal in being, essence, the whole shebang, right? That's, again, what we tend to think of as a relationship, that me and Jeff would mutually agree to the terms. We would mutually set the terms of what our relationship would look like, and then we both abide by them, and we're in relationship with one another now. Fair enough. But consider me and a total king. Right, so here's me, nobody, just regular old Dave, and a complete sovereign king over a nation, and I live in that king's country. Well, that king would then have absolute authority over me. It's an absolute monarchy in this country. He has authority to, to have me killed, to let me live, to give me whatever he wants. He gets to set the terms to everything, right? He would get, as the sovereign total king of the nation in which that I live, he would get to set the terms how, on this, how this relationship would exist because I am under his authority. But let's take this even a step further, right? If, if you think that that still doesn't sound very fair that I would have to submit to the king's terms just because he's sovereign, let's take it further. Imagine that I had attempted to murder this king and that I had hated him for my entire life and had dedicated my life to breaking every law that that king had ever decreed. And he still approached me and offered a relationship to me on his set terms. I would be completely at his mercy, would I not? I tried to kill the king. I have broken every law he had ever given. Whenever he comes to me offering relationship, I'm completely at his mercy. I have no rights to set a single term to the relationship. And furthermore, it would be incredible kindness and grace from the king of that nation that he would desire to know me at all not just have me killed, right? Kind of an extended analogy. But that king is Christ. That king is Jesus, the sovereign one of the universe, the one whom we have sinned against, the one in whose country we live in because he's Lord of all lords and king of all kings and he owns everything, the one whom we have rebelled against, the one whom we have sinned against because every time you break the law of God, you directly sin against God. He's the one that we've rebelled against. And he would be justified to turn from us and send us to hell for all of our sins against him. And yet, in grace and mercy towards us, he extends pardon for our crimes. He extends pardon to us. And he sets the terms on which we receive that pardon. All right, so this is a real relationship with this supreme king. He's the one, but he's just the one who has all rights and authority over the nobodies, that's you and me, who have rebelled against him. So I just wanted to put that before you. Submission to Christ is still a real relationship. If you think that submission to Christ is not a real relationship, it's because you probably think you're his equal. Just laying that down there. But we enter into and continue on in relationship with Jesus by faith. Right, you guys know this. We do it by faith, by submitting to him in trust. Right? That's what faith is, to trust in Christ. We can we, we begin, continue in this relationship by trusting that he is who he said he is and that he has done what he proclaims that he has done. That is faith. 
That's how we enter into this relationship. That's how we obtain this pardon. Now, again, this is all stuff that you've heard, but please let this stuff sink in. Just dwell on this because we're going to do a lot of rehashing stuff for the rest of this series that we're in 1 John. But we submit ourselves to Jesus. We submit ourselves in faith first to the truth about who Jesus is. To the truth about who he is. That he is, like we talked about in that analogy of the king, he is the supreme one. This will get you stoked just to think about who your king is. He is the eternal one. Right, the one who has always been the creator of all things. John chapter 1, right? Nothing that was created was made apart from him because he created everything. But like Paul talks about in Colossians, the preeminent one. The firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead, the one with the rights to everything. Like, like John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the divine Son of God. God made flesh who would humble himself to save sinners, that he is Lord. That he is Lord of all things. He is Lord over you. And that He is the judge of all. That He is the supreme one with full authority over me. The one who gets to set how things are to be. The divine lawgiver. We submit to those truths about Christ and His lordship and His supremacy. And we also submit ourselves in faith to the work that Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel. This is, this is the stuff you guys have always heard, but always bears repeating. This is what we proclaim week in and week out. This is what we proclaim to ourselves and to the world day in and day out is the gospel, the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. That Christ has fulfilled God's requirement of perfection on our behalf. That none of us could perfectly obey the law of God, and yet Christ offered Himself, I will go, I will keep their law, I will come, like Galatians 4, born of a woman, subjected to the law in order to redeem sinners from the weight and penalty of the law. That Christ worked perfection in our place. And then Christ undergoes and underwent the full judgment of God for us on the cross. That Christ was punished in our place for all of the sins that we have committed and that He was raised from the dead, that we too might be raised to newness of life and that He did all this in our place, apart from our help, no action from us required. He did it all in our place to save us from the wrath of God because He wanted to know us. Not because we're worth knowing, but because He is gracious. Because He is King. Because He is merciful and wants to show mercy to disobedient sons. now because of him because we trust in this work we will never be condemned by God because Jesus Christ has bore our condemnation and our judgment for us it's beautiful I know that this is all stuff that you've heard before and I'm not trying to teach anything new I'm not trying to blow anyone's minds we need this because John tells us to abide in him Abide in Him. John says, continue daily in this submission by faith. Continue believing this. Continue to trust this. 
who Christ is, what He has done. We are to daily, this is what John's calling us to, to commit ourselves to trusting in Christ and trusting in His work. That is abiding in Him. Trust in Him. Write this down if you're a note taker. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus has saved me. That is our theme. Christ is Lord. Christ is my Savior. He's both. I trust who He is. I trust what He has done. Abide in those truths. Let those sit in your heart. Meditate on those things. Because if this is the posture of your heart, John says you will never be put to shame. Ever. You will never be put to shame if this is the posture of your heart. Christ is Lord. He has saved me. John says we will have confidence before the judgment throne of God because we are in Christ and He is in us. Jesus himself says something to this effect in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Uh, In this context, Jesus has been teaching on how we all must believe on him to be saved. And then he says this. It's one of the most out-of-context passages you'll ever read. Uh, People jack it out all the time. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What's he saying? If you abide in my word. The context, the word that he had just finished speaking is that he is the light of the world. And unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then he says, if you abide in my word that I just spoke, you are my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This truth about who Christ is and what he has done sets us free from the power and penalty of sin. If you believe that I am He, if you believe that Christ is the Messiah, you are free from the penalty of your sins. You are free from the power of your sin. You can actually live righteously and not have to undergo the wrath of God. Furthermore, Scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, uh, again, the context is that since we have by faith obtained Jesus as a faithful high priest before the throne of God, and since we are reconciled to God, Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So by continuing to trust and submit to the person and work of Christ, we can look forward to the day of judgment with confidence, knowing that as we stand before the great white throne of Christ in judgment, that we will find mercy, that we will find grace. Because Christ is Lord, Christ has saved me. Abide in that, and you will have confidence. John then goes on in verse 29 to talk about assurance, right? Assurance that we're abiding in Him, right? So if you're like me and you're like, man, abiding in Jesus, trusting in Jesus kind of seems like an ethereal concept. It seems like an immaterial thing. I can't really hold on to, is my faith really in Him? Do I, am I really trusting that He is who He said He is? Am I really trusting that He has done what He said that He has done? Right? John talks about assurance in this verse. So how can we know that we're really abiding in Christ? How can we know that we have been born again? How can we know that we will be pardoned of our sin in the judgment? Verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right, so just real quick, if you're like me and you read that, if you know that he is righteous, like is this subject to debate in John's mind? It's not. Uh, some scholars argue that since you know he is righteous is actually more accurate to the Greek. Um, but yeah, so if you know that he is righteous, and in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is literally called Jesus the righteous, right? So in John's mind, it's not really up for debate or anything. He's saying, if you personally know about the righteousness of Christ, if you personally know him and are in relationship with him and know of his righteousness because you've experienced it and you're trusting in it, right? So if you know he is righteous, and he is, then you can know that those who live righteously are born of him. I think you could also say it'd be fair you can know those who live righteously are abiding in him. All right, so just a note real quick, because um, I know how some people's minds work. Um, John is not saying, because I've seen people use this verse out of context, I just want to be clear. John is not saying that all morally upright people are going to heaven. It's not what John is saying here. All right, some people look at that and say, see, anyone who does righteous things, anyone who lives righteously has been born of him. So that means that like my atheist neighbor who like helps out homeless people sometime, they must be born of Christ and they're going to heaven. It's not what John is saying here. All right, verse 28, we just looked at, sorry, verse 28 says that we must continue to abide in Christ in order to have confidence before his judgment, right? So again, don't, don't ever forget verse 28 whenever, if someone ever brings up verse 29 to say that like there's universal salvation whether or not you explicitly have faith in Christ. That's a joke. Verse 28 says that we must trust him. We must believe the gospel or shrink back in shame at his coming and be damned to hell. Right? So let me rearrange real quick verse 29 so maybe you can see John's thinking a little bit more clearly. All right? So those who are born of him, those who are born of Christ, are also those who abide in him. Right? So that's the link between 28 and 29. So, because if you're born again, if you're born of God or born again, then you trust in Christ. Right? Just how that works. We've talked about that last few weeks. You got any questions? Come talk to me. If you've been born of him, then you trust in him. Right? So let me break this down. Those who are born of him and abide in him practice righteousness. And they do this because he is righteous. I read a theologian say this. I thought this was beautiful. Um, John is saying that those who are born of Christ bear the family resemblance. Right? Those who are born of him, are they live righteously because he is righteous. So his righteousness somehow flows down into those who are born of him. And this is because... We talk about this a lot at Rev. Submission to the Lord Jesus naturally results in conformity to who He is. In gratitude, right? We submit to the truth that He is the supreme God, the supreme Lord of all things, who has bore our punishment and penalty in our place and has given us His righteousness. Of course, I want to do whatever He says. I want to be just like Him. He's my God. He's my King. Furthermore, this is one of the reasons why God saved us. Romans 8.29 For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to be like Him. So, 
just to track through this again, those who are born of Him then abide in Him, and those who abide in Him begin to live like Him. They begin to live like the righteous Lord Jesus. And again, I want to make a note just for clarification. John is not saying, he is not saying that if you are righteous, then you will be born again. He is not saying if you are righteous, then you will be saved. He is saying if you're saved, you will begin to live righteously. If you are abiding in Christ, you will begin to live righteously is what he's saying. The new birth is the cause of righteousness. Not the effect of it. So our righteous living then is proof that we have submitted to Jesus by faith and are abiding in Him by faith. So what John is saying here is if you have no righteousness, if you have no righteous living, then you have no assurance. If you have no righteous living, then you have no confidence for the return of Christ or the judgment of God. You have nothing to hold on to if there's no righteousness in your, in your life. And in other places in this letter, John says that if you have no righteousness and you're not striving for righteousness and you're not striving to, to be holy and you're, not stri- and you're not repenting of your sin, that you're not even saved. That you can't have come to know Him. Because righteousness is the product of salvation. Again, it's not the cause of your salvation, but it is the product of it. So a good question, what does it look like to practice righteousness? It's a very simple answer here. What does it look like to practice righteousness? Scripture declares on repeat that God himself is the definition of righteousness. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So righteousness looks like Jesus. To live righteously... To practice righteousness, then, is to live like Christ. So just some questions, then. Because, again, what's Christ's biggest thing? I love the Father. So love God, the two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. I love God so I don't sin against Him. I walk in obedience to everything that God has commanded. And I love my neighbor as I love myself, so I never do wrong to my neighbor. That's the life of Christ. So... Do you strive to live like Him? Do you talk like Him? Do you love like Him? Do you hate what He hates? Do you love what He loves? Do you strive to kill sin and be holy like Him? Now again, nobody is ever, ever, ever going to be perfectly like Jesus this side of glory. But the question is, are you being slowly transformed to resemble Him? In the words of Paul, from one degree of glory to the next... One degree at a time, are you being transformed? Because if you are, you can have assurance that you'll be confident when he returns. So again, summary of these verses. If you continue to trust in and submit to who Jesus is and what he has done, you will never be put to shame. You will have confidence on the day of judgment. And you can know that that confidence is yours if your life reflects who Jesus is. So in light of what John has written, i got three things I'm going to try to blast through that I want you guys to meditate on by way of application. And please, please hear me on these things. Right? Because if we don't apply these truths to our lives, then we have just wasted the last 39 minutes of our life. 
We must apply these truths to our lives. Instead of doing what I'm prone to do, and I know a lot of you are too, filing this stuff away as, ah, yes, I have more theological knowledge of uh, the return of Jesus now. Or like, I know in theory that I should live righteously so that I can be uh, confident when he returns, but have no confidence yourself. So please apply these truths to your life. First one, live your life in light of the knowledge of Christ's return. Right? Live your life in light of the coming judgment of God upon the world. And I have two reasons that I think that you should keep the return in mind at all times. One, this should drive us towards holiness, right? If you guys are like me, and I'm not making fun of my mother, you guys remember people, uh, your parents asking you, would you do that if Jesus were right next to you right now? Right, you guys remember those, those questions? Like, would you do that if Jesus were here? Right, those WWJD bracelets that no one wears anymore. Um, right? Jesus sees everything. Would you do that if he were here? That is a great question. Because uh, in a sense, his spiritual presence, one, that's actually like a true statement. Right? Like, he actually is <laughs> always with you. Um, but in light of the fact that all things will be accounted for, that Jesus says whatever is done in darkness will be shouted from the rooftops in the judgment. That there will be nothing to hide from him. There are no secrets because nothing escapes the eye of Christ. Let that push you towards holiness. That what you do behind closed doors and what you do in the darkness, every idle word that you say and think, everything will be brought into light before him. Let that push you towards holiness. And second... Let the coming judgment comfort you. And that might sound really weird to some of you guys. But let it comfort you. Consider this. We see all the racism. We see all the prejudice. We see poverty. We see greed. We see all the injustice. We see rape. We see murder. We see war. We see all of this garbage going on in the world because of the wickedness and sinfulness of mankind. And God says, I see it. And I will judge it. It will not be this way forever. I'm coming in righteousness to strike down all who oppose me and end it. It should comfort the Christian to know that God will give justice to the unrepentant. To know that all accounts will be settled. And that all injustice will be done away with. That should bring us a lot of comfort. Number two. Be introspective. Be introspective in light of this, right? In light of verse 29. What evidence do you have that you are abiding in Christ? What do you have? What evidence do you have of righteousness in your life? Right? And this is going to sound weird again. That should encourage you to be introspective and look in yourself and ask yourself these questions. Because I know a lot of us are like, that doesn't sound very encouraging to me because I know what kind of a piece of trash that I am, right? And I'm right there with you. But all Christians, those who truly trust in Christ, you will have evidence. And that should be an encouragement to you. There will be something somewhere in your life that will give evidence to the fact that you are abiding in Him. So please, as you're being introspective, don't impossibly judge yourself. Right? We want to be introspective, but don't become a navel gazer. Right? Don't be ridiculous. Don't impossibly judge yourself. But be, be honest with yourself, though. No one's going to be nailing it 10 for 10 perfect all the time in any area, really. But you should rejoice in the things that you can see where you're becoming like Christ. Right? I'm not who I was a year ago with this. I do forgive people easier. Still don't forgive them right off the bat whenever they wrong me. 
but it's not like nine months of grudge holding anymore, right? Like that's evidence of righteousness, right? So things like that, right? So no one's going to be nailing it 10 for 10, but whenever you become introspective and look, you're going to see some righteousness there. You're going to see where you're not who you were before you knew Christ. Rejoice in that. Rejoice over what God has done for you and what He's doing in you and be confident in His work that He who began the good work in you will see it through to the completion, right? Whenever Christ returns, it will be completed. And again, in your introspection, let that drive you to repentance because while we all will have some evidence, honest introspection is going to reveal where we need to turn parts of our lives over to Christ more. So be like Him and repent where you're not like Him. And lastly, abide in Christ. Seriously, please, please hear me. Abide in Him. That is the central point and theme of this entire section. Abide in Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust His work. Rely on Him. Don't let verse 29, talking about your righteousness... Cloud the truth of verse 28. That's not what John intended it to do. 28, you will be confident if you abide in Him. You will not be saved because of your own righteousness. Please hear me. You will not be saved because of your own righteousness. You must indeed strive to be righteous like Christ, but it won't save you. It will absolutely not save you because Christ alone saves. It is His righteousness. It is His life. It is His death. It is His resurrection that's going to save you. Your obedience won't even factor into it on the day of judgment because Christ's work needs no supplement. It is sufficient. He will save you. Abide in Him. Keep trusting Him. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus has saved me. Abide in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for sending Your Son, the Messiah, for ruined sinners to save us, to obey the law for us, to to take the punishment of breaking the law for us, to rise from the dead for us, doing every single thing that was necessary to save us. Thank You. God, help us to abide in Him in spite of false teaching that we might hear, in spite of days that we want to run astray. Like the the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. God, seal us to Your Son. Let us continue to abide in Him. Let us continue to trust in Him. And make us righteous like Him. Let us be conformed to His image to know Him to love what He loves, to hate what He hates, to be like Him. We thank You for the confidence that we can have for the day of judgment. Thank You so much for Christ. He is our confidence. He is our righteousness. Thank You. In His name, Amen.